This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Grips. For comfort, durability, and grip diameter options, Renthal Street has a grip for everyone. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. This podcast is coming to you thanks to Gas Gas, the newest brand in MotoGP and with the mantra to get on the gas. Check out the ES700 Dual Sport to hit the road in red. But with more street bikes on the way from Gas Gas, it's worth keeping an eye on that. After a great weekend for the Gas Gas Factory Racing Tech Trot team in Le Mans, we're delighted to have them on board for this podcast. And on today's pod, we're looking back at a landmark event in MotoGP history. I'm not actually talking about the 1,000 Grand Prix in MotoGP history. I'm talking about Adam Wheeler's journey to Le Mans. Adam, tell us about your planes, trains, and automobiles journey to get to the middle of France. It took me about 1,000 hours. That's what it felt like, Steve. So, yeah, it was particularly epic. Um, I also have to remind you that a rental street backs this podcast. I don't know if I've preempted your uh, introduction, but, um, you know, thanks to rental made in England, but also uh, backed from rental street distributor in the US as well so big thanks to those guys and become another podcast but um, yeah I was supposed to get on a plane but my passport was in the American embassy getting a visa I uh, didn't get back in time I wasn't allowed on the plane so then I had to find uh, train travel via Paris to Le Mans uh, so it was particularly fraught and long so yeah I need to get back in the gym and move my legs because they've been sort of preserved in a seat for some time. Was it worth it, though? Yeah, I mean, we did a we did a podcast um, last week, Steve. We were sorry to miss you, but I know you were work, you were sort of you know laid up or exhausted from the Catalan round of the Superbike. But um, you know, we were kind of looking at Le Mans and uh, talking about its pros and cons. But I thought it was Neil and I were talking about this as well when we were walking out of the circuit over the weekend. It was just a fantastic event. Uh, the weather stayed good, and it was just very busy, as we'll get to a little bit later in the podcast. So I think it's a uh, it was a deserving winner of the Grand Prix of the Year in 2022, and it's going to be another contender again this season. Yeah, it looked like a great event again. Neil, we've obviously heard Adam queuing up that uh, you were at Le Mans as well. But on Thursday, on a scale of 1 to 10, how smug were you whenever you got the, the message from, from Ad about his journey up? <laughs> Finally, people will forget about you booking hotels by the hour in Malaysia. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to point out that Adam has actually been messaging me a couple of times in recent weeks, asking what my travel plans are, and I've been able to tell him. Well, I've actually booked this flight at this time and this hotel in this place, so you need to kind of follow that, which is a first. Um, and yeah, Adam was saying it felt like he was on, on the train for a thousand hours. I spent, I think, five or six hours in Charles de Gaulle, which I think, relatively speaking, equates to a thousand hours in everyday life. So uh, yeah, I also feel like I've kind of been through the ringer. Dave, obviously you didn't go to Le Mans this weekend, but you do for some reason like Charles de Gaulle Airport. So this this makes everything a little bit strange for the next couple of seconds on the podcast. Why do you like Charles de Gaulle Airport? You seem to be the only man in the paddock that likes it. Well, to be honest, all I do is uh, transfer at uh, Terminal 2 and Terminal 2 is lovely. I mean, it's a really nice, big, spacious, interesting piece of architecture. Um, seats are comfy. Uh, there's sort of power outlets everywhere. The fact that Dave classifies fondness for airports by power outlets pretty much says it all for Charles of Gaulle, I think. <laughs> I actually, I, I would imagine that Dave's favourite airport would be Gibraltar Airport, a great airport to fly into for Hereth. 
It's got absolutely no flights arriving other than your flights. The airport's dead quiet. The Wi-Fi is really good. There's lots of power outputs as well, Dave, because there's no customers. <laughs> and uh, it works really well. My favourite airport, well, it used, I think it's actually closed now, but it used to be um, Cambridge. I flew into Cambridge once and it's literally just like uh, an airstrip and a shed. Uh, well, that's your that's your moment of travelling uh, travelling haven anyway, David. But let's get to our moments of the French Grand Prix because we've got a lot to get through on today's show. We've got plenty of interviews to plug into the show and we've got a lot of ground to cover because this was an action-packed weekend. But let's kick it off, Adam. What was your moment of the weekend? Uh, aside from the utter shock on Sunday morning of being able to get into the track in only 20 minutes, uh, I think, Steve, for me, it was just the Pekka Bagnaia Maverick Bignales collision um, coming up through, was it turn 11, 12, the chicane, the last section there before you get to the, the double right apex on the circuit. Uh, for Pekka Bagnaia, disaster, of course. I mean, a third DNF. Um, for Maverick Bignales as well, you could say it was disastrous because this was one particular occasion where he was... Um, looking good for, for at least a podium finish. Uh, he really had the speed. Um, we spoke to, you know, a pretty racing CEO, Massimo Rivola. He will be popping up a bit later on the podcast. Uh, and he was saying that they had had a bit of a pep talk of Maverick about being more aggressive and being able to push harder at the beginning of the race to put himself into contention. And it all seemed to be going pretty well for the Catalan. Uh, so that collision, which... You know, when you initially watched the replays, it kind of seemed like Bagnaia maybe should have checked up or given Vinales a little bit more space. But it was one of those things where the lines came together. And to see them kind of kicking off a little bit in the gravel trap as well was like a little bit of spice. I mean, it quickly eroded, of course, because they're quite one. They're both quite nice guys and they're quite level headed. So I think they made their peace and they obviously came back to the pit um, on the same scooter. But yeah, I thought it was a spectacular moment, of course. Um, it seems to be endemic a little bit of MotoGP this year where we're having collisions, we're having uh, talking points outside of the, you know, basically I think you can see on our podcast that we're talking about moments like this rather than brilliance from from riders more often than not. And uh, it's uh, it's kind of sums up the urgency, I think, around the racing this year. But uh, it was it was a big one, you know. There were several of those throughout the Le Mans weekend, and what was another kind of crash-tastic Grand Prix? Yeah, I have to say, I thought that in that instant, that it's a racing instant, but it's a stupid one from Pecco. It costs him the championship points because he's the rider with something to lose. Maverick's got nothing to lose. He's not going to win the world championship. He's just trying to win a race or get back in the podium, get that form back again. And he was he was riding really well, so he was always going to come through. He, you know, and. Pecco tries to tough it up around the outside, but there was no need for it really for Pecco's perspective and it ended up costing him a lot of points. But it's kind of weird because if, if you look back at it again, and I'm not sure if it's on YouTube, but um, I was watching it through the MotoGP.com player, um, there's like contact and then they seem to sort of hit again. It's like there's an initial bounce and then there's the, the, the collision that actually takes both of them off the track and into the gravel. So it must have been some some pretty big hit really to, to, to cause that sort of after effect. Do we think it's a racing incident or do you, do we really think anyone was at, at fault? Because to me, it just looked like two people ending up on the same piece of tarmac. Well, I think this is one of the things, Dave, you can have a racing incident where someone is more to blame than the other. Yeah. And this is a racing incident where, as I said, with Peckle, with so much to lose relative to Maverick, it's one of those situations where there was very little to be gained from Peckle trying to hang it around the outside like that. But he's also trying to race. He's trying to win a championship. He thinks there's points to be had. So you can understand that. But this is this is a pure racing incident. There's 555 points left. And he's thrown away quite a few points already, Dave. 
I mean, it was a great move by Maverick, uh, you know, but I think if you see the, the camera angle that sort of shows the, the chicane straight on, then he obviously ran a little bit wide and threw himself into the next left hand quite aggressively. Uh, so he just brought the two two riders together. I don't think many people were diving in as deep as, as Vinales did throughout the course of the race, but uh, fair play to the move for Vinales, but then, you know, maybe Bagnaia was, could have been a little bit more aware because it ended up costing him as well. Dave, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend? Uh, well, mine was a, a, another crash. It was an absolutely terrifying moment where uh, Luca Marini exited the chicane on uh, lap six, I think, uh, lost the front, almost saved it, but in doing so, um, ended up getting hit by uh, Alex Marquez. Um, and Alex Marquez was left sort of in the, tra- uh, you know, standing in the middle of the track with riders sort of flying by, most of them fortunately on the inside, which gave him a, a chance to escape. But it was another one of those just absolutely terrifying moments um, where it could have gone really, really horribly wrong. There was a lot of talk about the crashes afterwards. And um, it, it was interesting. The riders basically saying, the thing is, we're all so close. Like everything is so close. All of the riders are so uh, are so close. And so you in- inevitably end up with the, with this. When you get a very, very tight field. I mean, we see it a lot in, in Moto3. You know, <clears throat> you've got 10 riders all within, uh, sort of covered by sort of a second or so. Uh, and so when something goes wrong, the potential is very, very, it's very, very bad. It's on the one hand, it, it, it's the, it's the dynamic of motorcycle on the one, on the one hand, it's fantastic, spectacular, great to watch. But on the other, it's, you're just waiting for disaster to strike. Yeah, it is the thing with the pack racing that you have across the board now. And MotoGP, like you said, David, it is the same as that. Whenever you look at how close it is, where a tenth of a second is the difference between, you know, two rows of the grid and different things like that. So it ends up where situations like this can happen. I thought, obviously for Marini, very unlucky because he makes a great save and then he ends up still on the deck. But I have to say, for me, it was very unlucky because they were two of my riders in MotoGP Fantasy, so I was devastated. Peko was one of the other ones as well. That's probably why I'm I'm a little bit more against Peko in that instant with Maverick as well, lad. <laughs> but uh, Neil, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend? Uh, well, I thought the the racing at the weekend um, was almost the wrong way around. We've become accustomed to the sprints delivering really epic races, and then the uh, the Sunday affair being slightly tamer. But it was kind of the the other way around. The sprint race was actually a little tamer on the Saturday, um, and I think my highlight of that race was. And there were some great moves going into turn three at the Dunlop Chicane. And um, I think it was on lap five of the sprint, Mark's pass on Peko at that particular moment, um, which pushed them both wide. Um, and then had Peko sort of waving his hand afterwards was uh, was quite interesting because um, right the way through the weekend, we saw Mark looking really fantastic on the brakes. Um, really, really strong, basically having to try and make up all his time there. Um, and he fought kind of like a lion in, uh, in in both encounters. And I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit more about this um, as, the, as the podcast goes on. Um, but I love that little moment between them because, um, yeah, he was obvious. His intention was to not let Banyaya settle into a rhythm and to try and maybe ruffle his feathers a little bit. And he, he, did, uh, he did just that. Also interesting afterwards that, um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the talk focused on whether that move should have been penalised um, according to what um, the FIM stewards told riders on Friday evening. 
anything with kind of contact um, would result in one rider having to to drop a place. Um, and Banyaya was interested in saying that he agreed that Marquez didn't have to drop a place, but after the FIM stewards had told them on Friday that they were going to have to, he was slightly perplexed. So um, it seemed that um, Friday's evening, Friday evening's meeting didn't really do anything to to make anyone uh, any wiser on uh, just exactly where the uh, the stewards stand. Yeah, I have to say, I thought that the the moment that you picked there, Neil, it was a great battle. And it was great to see Mark able to get himself back to front. And you said it in the note show that this is the first time that he's raced really since, what, the end of last season, in the feature length races especially. But uh, when you look at what he was able to do, to jump in at the, the deep end after the injury, after, you know, what happened at the start of the year, and we saw the proper mark. And uh, obviously, like I said, we're going to come to that in a little while on the show. We do also, uh, just because you've you've mentioned the sprint race there, Neil, you'd have to look at the sprint race winner as well as being one of the moments of the week. And I thought that Jorge Martin in the sprint race really was impressive. And uh, Dave, when you, when you think about Martin's performances in the sprints, we did expect that he was going to be strong, but uh, finally able to get that race win this year. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, we were expecting it's not a race uh, win. him to be... <laughs> yeah, it's a sprint win. It's a race win. Oh, come on. It's a race winning overtake. That's all yeah. I know. Yeah, exactly. No, it's a race win. The, 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 the whole charade is gradually coming uh, coming to an end because we can't keep uh, we can't keep track of the points. People are going to get bored, especially once we get into about race fifteen. Um, uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a great win. It was a great race. Um, uh, we had been expecting. He said he was sort of like looking for he was looking for some feeling which he just hadn't been able. Uh, to get and also a little bit of confidence like when you because his last win was Styria I think was uh, Austria 21 um, uh, and so like he, he said like it was like a mental block he, he 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 knew he could win but he couldn't find a way to do it and once he did so uh, the, you know it, it really it lifted a weight off his shoulders and we saw him in the main race as well you know he looked really really strong in the main race ended up uh, uh, on the podium and um, and it just rode really, just rode really well. I think we're going to see more sprint wins from him now that he's got his confidence again. Yeah, I think what was uh, what was interesting um, from Martin's performance over the whole weekend was that um, he was able to attack and he was able to overtake. Now, obviously, he was on, I think, probably the best bike. Um, you know, Ducati showed uh, in both races that um, you know it was the it was the best package at uh, at Le Mans. Um, but still, you know, Martin had to start well. He had to make his way through the battle, and that's something that he was unable to do. Um, at Hareth, you know, he had the pace there, I think, to probably win or at least uh, be on the, you know, the top two, but couldn't make his way through the group. Um, and yeah, I was interested by this. So I went and spoke to his crew chief, Dan- Daniele Romagnoli, uh, to understand what he'd improved and um, how he had uh, got himself ready to be a bit more combative. Uh, Daniele, it looks like a, a big step forward from Ahoy this weekend. You obviously had the speed of Perez, but just couldn't quite maybe overtake in the, the battle at the front. But here this weekend, he seemed to be better in the battle and a bit more aggressive. Um, what was the, was the change? Well, first of all, the temperature of uh, ambient temperature in the ground is lower here and it permits you to, to have better feeling with the front. You can uh, push more on the front. Perez with a very hot temperature and we are in the slipstream. Plus, the downforce we have in the bikes now, it's difficult to overtake it. This circuit is a little easier. Uh, but also, for example, like yesterday, uh, Martin in the sprint race was in front, and it's much easier to be in front to have a good pace. When you are behind, uh, still the same problem that normally we have. So, uh, to manage uh, the, the front, especially in the circuit, is, is a key. 
for example, also we, we choice uh, to, to, to use the front soft tire like the most of the riders. Yes, it's not the best on the braking, but it allows to have a good corner speed and some grip. Sometimes when you use a little medium tire or a hard tire, they are better on the braking. But then sometimes you lose the front like with no advice. So it's, uh, we work so much, especially for the for braking area with the soft front tire. Yeah, yeah. Was this work that you've done in the, pre or the post race test at Jerez and then coming here? Honestly, in Jerez, we compare one component of the bike that we start the season, that in Argentina we have some doubt, because Argentina was a little difficult for the rear grip, and we put back here after because we tested in Jerez this component, actually the swing gun. And uh, so we put back in the circuit that uh, we did a comparison in the circuit. It was happier with the new swing gun and better grip. So then we decided to put on the two, the two bikes this new single swing gun. Okay. How was your assessment of Jorge's battle with Mark? I mean, that was super intense. And yeah. I mean, he timed his, his move at turn seven to perfection. Yeah, my watch was saying, hey, you are, your heartbeat is a little unstable. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, yes, uh, passing uh, Mark is very difficult. He tried a few times, but you know, you try to pass him, but also is very strong. And then he was running wide a little, so it has been passed back. But finally, he tried to overtake Mark and he passed him. And we have a better rear grip, also rear tire was in better condition. It, just to pull a little, a little gap that Mark to follow him after he crossed the front and crash. Yeah, yeah. Has been very strong with Mark. Jorge was saying in recent, like in the past, that maybe he needed to be a little more aggressive in the fights like this. And today we saw it. Yeah, very, I'm very happy. I think he's shown the best race like in, uh, to be in the fight. Yeah. Today was, uh, to me, the best race for Martin uh, when we saw MotoGP in the fight. Just one final question. During preseason, it was like a really impressive showing from Jorge in both Sepang and then uh, the second preseason test. Um, do you think he has the potential to now kick on from this and be up there in the championship? Yeah, definitely. Also, he said, I'm back. This means he's confident that he's, uh, he's better in the battle, for example, also the front and braking he did an improvement, like riding style together with the setting. So I think he will get some boost for, uh, from now on to the season. Yeah, great insight there, Neil. Fair play for getting that interview. It does make a big difference, obviously, just to get the extra insight all the way through a season. And that's what we do a lot of on the Paddock Notes show. So check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast to become a Patreon supporter. And we have lots of additional content like that over the course of a race weekend. Adam, let's get straight to it. What's your big talking point from the French Grand Prix? Uh, for me, Steve, it's just about Le Mans and how do they get things so right? Uh, we've known for a couple of years now there's a busy Grand Prix. Um, it's a well-organized Grand Prix. Uh, but, you know, of course, as we mentioned, you know, in 2022, it won the prize for actually the best attended sporting event in France. Um, it was the site of the Thousands Grand Prix on this occasion, um, almost 117,000 people counted. And I think, you know, we have to take, you can throw like a cellar of salt at the, the attendance figures because, you know, how real, how accurate are they? Um, Dave, on your on, on the website motormatters.com, I thought you were particularly insightful in analysing, you know, some of the figures banded around Jerez, for example, and how you know these you can't really depend on them too much. But uh, from personal experience, I went to walk around the track on Saturday, and I really was a bit of a throwback for me. I thought it was fantastic. I mean, there was people four or five deep at the fences. I mean, people were camped out with their chairs, their picnic boxes, you know, around sort of term one, uh, two, three, four. It was, it just seemed absolutely packed. Um, you know, you had a real sense of occasion. It was not people there for Fabio Quattararo and Joan Zarco. It was not that kind of crowd. It seemed very eclectic and there was different pockets of 
you know, people wearing different apparel and, you know, people there for the racing, it seemed. Um, of course, thousands and thousands of bikes. Uh, and it just seems to me, that, you know, it seems like a sporting event that's successful and it's not rocket science. Um, I mean, Claude Michy, the promoter, seemed to be um, a name that people were talking about just as much as the races over the weekend. I mean, how is the man able to, to stage such um, a promising kind of spectacle every year? Of course, the price comes you know, into it because it's like a sub 100 euro ticket for three days. Um, we spoke about it on the, you know, the pre, well, the preview podcast, how Le Mans seems to kind of wrap all the spectators around one particular site. And of course, being the 24 hour circuit, that site is particularly vast. There's quite a bit of parking space. There's quite a lot of camping space. There are activities going on, uh, you know, music concerts and the like. Uh, it's not really like a festival though. Uh, I think people just camp there. They set themselves up there, you know, even up to what, six, five, six days before the Grand Prix, four days, even before there's a motorcycle on track. So it seems like there's a bit of a, a routine established around Le Mans and, um, you know, I think in that area of France as well, motorcycle racing seems to be particularly popular. Uh, I've been many years to Ernay for the motocross, um, for the motocross of nations, the circuit. Ernay's less than an hour up the road from Le Mans and it's always been absolutely packed for those events as well. So there's no doubt that the area of France is, is, is a hot spot for motorcycle racing. But, um, you know, I think a lot of people just need to come. They need to come to Le Mans and see how it works. And there has to be something to be said for cheap tickets. And I think the ultimate contrast will be in three weeks' time for the next round when we go to Mugello and see what kind of uh, crowd we have this year. Uh, we talked a bit about maybe some of the flakiness of Italian fans. You know, are they all obsessed with Valentino Rossi? Are they actually going to get behind an Italian world champion on an Italian motorcycle at one of the greatest racetracks in the world? So, uh, yeah, I want to see what we get, you know, when, when we arrive to Mugello. But uh, Le Mans, for me went from being one of those events where you kind of thought, well, you know, maybe I can skip that one. But after this year, I think I'll definitely be trying to book the, the rather charming uh, bed and breakfast that I had this weekend for uh, 2024. Yeah, just make sure you got your passport ad so you're able to yes. have a more seamless travel journey. But uh, I have to say, like, Le Mans is one of my favourite rounds in the calendar, always has been, because I've gone there as a fan I went there in 2007 I took my dad and it was his first ever MotoGP race and we went there just as fans in the streams of rain and it was a great atmosphere and then I've been for the 24 hour car race I've been for obviously the MotoGP as well and there's lots of things around the track for different people I remember there was one time I was wandering around and there was like the Le Mans men's choir singing Beatles songs in the middle of the paddock uh, and then you move on to the next thing and there was guys juggling or whatever it was. They just had a little bit of something for everything to make it where it was a little bit more fun for anyone to go to it. They have, you know, in, in the past, they've always had uh, the carnival there as well on the far side of the grandstand. They do a lot of things just to make it where everyone has something to go to. You're going to a big event. As you said, uh, the ticket sales aren't aren't expensive. But neither is Silverstone. Silverstone's £100 for a full weekend ticket. So a lot of Grand Prix try and do it where the tickets can be affordable. But is there enough things going on to make it where everyone wants to go to the event? Yeah, as far as I'm aware, the uh, you know the tickets were not only reasonable, but um, the car parking was free. I think the camping was also free at Le Mans this weekend, which you have to say would make a, a big difference. I seem to remember Silverstone in years gone by. 
people complaining of excessive um, parking costs. Um, you know, you add all these things together along with the ticket and the lunch and the breakfast and the parking. Suddenly it becomes like quite an expensive day out. Um, and um, yeah, I was speaking to an Italian colleague on Sunday morning and we were sort of discussing about the differences with Magello. And he was saying, you know, what as a fan, what, what are you supposed to do at Magello? Because once the... Once the sessions finish at what four PM on a Friday, Saturday, and then race racing's over by what three on a Sunday, you know what is there, what is there to do other than um, basically go back to your tent or walk around the campsite and you know listen to people rev the absolute tits out of some kind of some kind of engine. Um, Le Mans, I would kind of disagree a bit with uh, with that and say that I, I did get kind of festival music festival vibes. You know, and when we were leaving the track on on Saturday, uh, on Friday as well, it was a bit. We were um, having a dinner at the track, and um, we were leaving a bit later. Yeah, there's set, uh, stages set up for music. There's loads and loads of different shops around. They had a kind of esport stage where people could, you know, play computer games and try and set the fastest times. Um, I even heard a jazz band, um, which I thought, you know, was really disappointing that Dave wasn't there because uh, not only would he have been in the moment, but he could have listened to his favourite genre of music. Straight from the straight from the Alpine Stars Tiramisu into uh, uh, into a jazz concert. Yeah, my idea of uh, of heaven. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, yeah, I think like the campsites are, are a bit wild and, and, and crazy, but certainly around the track, there's just, uh, as you were saying, Steve, you know, there is so much on, there is so much to entertain people. Um, there's activities going on in the start and finish straight right the way through to sundown, basically. We left the track, I think, at half eight and on Saturday. And, um, you know, people were still absolutely packed into the grandstands with um, stunt bike shows going on in the main straight. I think there were some classic bikes on show. There was a big uh, section where some of Agostini's old bikes were there for the thousands GP. Um, and, you know, there was an indication from Thursday evening that this was going to be a big event when, well, official figures state 15,000 people. Maybe it was a little less than that, but it was still a hell of a lot of people just showed up for the uh, the pit lane walk um, so they could get a chance of, uh, you know, spying someone like Quattuaro or, or, or Zarco in their garages. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, I agree with that. It doesn't seem like rocket science. Um, and I also think as a fan, say you're a French fan watching at home, whenever you watch the television and you see packed out grandstands, you see people you see a great atmosphere, it makes you far more inclined to think, you know what, that looks like a great event that I'll have to visit next year. Um, and I think, you know, if, even if you're, say you're not getting full value for each ticket, as long as you're packing out the grandstands, you'll ensure that more people want to come. Two questions I've got, Steve, very quickly for you. What, what was the difference between the MotoGP uh, event and the 24 hour in terms of atmosphere was it like a, pretty much a similar vibe and secondly why aren't other events following this formula then is it because places like Mugello don't have the size to accommodate that level of people and also external activities to the track um, I think we know that sort of Silverstone does uh, why are people not just taking the Le Mans template and replicating it and thinking, okay, we're going to get um, twenty to 30,000 extra people because the costs are pretty reasonable? I mean, of course, that maybe ramps up your security costs uh, or your fencing costs or whatever it may be. But, you know, it's all, it seems like um, a speculation to, to accumulate. Um, it just seems like basic math to me. Well, uh, the biggest thing in the difference between the car crowd and the bike crowd is 
Neil has mentioned there about the free campsite. You couldn't pay me to stay in that campsite again. I stayed in it in 2007 and it was one of the worst experiences of my life. And I can put up with an awful lot of shit. But that campsite was horrendous. Everyone's tents were being set on fire. There was just (laughs) absolute fucking mayhem everywhere you turned. And uh, after two nights, we just said, nah, I'm not having this. And we just... We took our tent and we just went down to the bottom of some farmer's field. We threw him a couple of bottles of wine and we said, can we just camp here for the night? And uh, and he said, yeah, work away. The The bike race and the car race are different as well because of the time of year. In the It's the longest weekend of the year is when they put the 24-hour car race on and it ends up being just fantastic weather all the way through. It's warm. Everyone's just sitting around for, well, for five days really just soaking in the atmosphere and it's one of those things a bit like what you were saying about um what they do at Le Mans for the MotoGP race with all the different different events and different things that they're doing to draw in fans they do the same for the car race they're just very good at promoting the events and then I think one of the big things with it is they understand that it is an event and Le Mans as a city they've got a 24-hour rollerblade race they've got a 24-hour chess match thing that goes on all the way around the Bugatti circuit as well so they are just set up for all these kind of big events and the French just the French just love getting themselves involved for for a full weekend we even see it at, at uh, Magni Corps for Superbikes and probably one of the biggest differences you have between the Magni crowd and the Le Mans crowd is that at Le Mans so much of it can be in on top of the paddock at Magni it's actually all uh, it's all up at turn five. That's where they've got their main grandstands, their key overtaking place, all this kind of stuff. So it's all built around there. So we have our superbike crowd kind of away from the paddock, so it doesn't look as big, but it's actually a very big crowd and good atmosphere down there. So the French, like you said, Ad, for the motocross, for pretty much any event, just love to go to love to go to a track and just hear the bikes, see the cars, whatever it is. And that's probably what has a big impact on an event like this. The promoters know how to tap into their audience. Yeah, but they also know how to put on an event. I mean, this is the point is the reason. I mean, like I am no fan of Lamar. It's not a secret. I mean, you talk about having your your, your tent set on fire. I've been um, uh, I've been around Lamar at sort of you know at eleven thirty, and the atmosphere is a lot less jovial and festive than um, uh, than it is a few hours earlier. Um, however, it's just an amazing event. They understand that they have to entertain people. Um, that uh, you have to give people you know real value you for money yes it's cheap tickets but you do get a lot of um you do get a lot of value for money obviously you know like free parking free camping that makes a big difference especially in the mall where accommodation is really expensive um but i know that for example uh, the the, uh, the circuit organizers or the race organizers at assen they go and get down to lamar every year because they want to pick up clues they want to pick up ideas they want to do things um lamar also has the advantage of it it's a massive chunk of land so they've got lots and lots of space to actually organize all these things without incurring extra costs you know there is space to uh, to park Aston is the same there's space to park um uh, Saxon Ring isn't there's a, you know you've got to find somewhere to park and you're always ending up uh, sort of like paying an extra 10 euros but it is only uh, sort of 10 euros but again Saxon Ring there's events everywhere there's massive campsites all over the place and there's just lots and lots of things there's a fairground and there's uh, all sorts of other things um 
Assen as well. They try and put on as much as possible actually in the town, and the you know the the town is right next to the circuit, and so they there's stuff to do. They're giving people a reason to actually go. I think the problem with Mugello is it's quite a small chunk of land. It's very tightly bound, so there's not a lot of room to be doing. Uh, sort of, you know, extra things. There's not a lot of, of room to be putting up, uh, you know, big wheels and putting on bands and and, and all the rest of it. So it, it does make it more difficult, but it is clear that you can't... Magella used to sell it just on Valentino Rossi, and you cannot do that anymore. We don't have a star of that sort of stature. Um, people are just not going to be willing to pay, uh, pay for that kind of access. You need to give people a reason to spend a lot of money. Just uh, quickly before we go to an ad break, David, you've mentioned there Assen, Le Mans, Saxon Ring. There are three tracks as well that you can get right in on top of the action. The grandstands literally are, you know, spitting distance to the racetrack. So you are able to get yourself into position to be able to get right up close to all the action. You go to somewhere like Silverstone and you're a mile away. Silverstone creates some of the best racing we see all the way through the season, but you are from a long distance away, which has a big impact as well. And that that has to be a factor as well. The 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 feeling you have at the track as well makes a big difference when the bikes are out there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it definitely makes a big uh, it it definitely makes a big difference. Um, uh, you know, you you want to be able to sort of get on top of it. There's nothing that Silverstone can do about that. It's also it feels like a really big spread out circuit. It is. It's a massive circuit. Whereas uh, Le Mans, you can walk around quite easily. Even Assen, you, you can walk around. You can walk around fairly easily because it is sort of it is sort of stretched out. But it, it, it's easy to actually get around. So, um, and of course, the the big thing is that Silverstone is in the middle of nowhere. So you are once you are there, you are stuck there. Uh, I mean. Toast is a charming little uh, uh, village, but it's not going or a little, little sort of English country town, but it's not exactly um, a, a big city. There isn't a, a massive amount of, of of nightlife there, so all of the entertainment has to be there. Uh, Le Mans, you can either go to the track site, you can you know stay on the campsite and go through all of that madness, or uh, you can stay in the town and uh, it's a charming French you know small french city so with with all of the conveniences of the, and uh, of that so yeah it's that i think is is also an important factor i think the weather obviously played a part um on the weekend but um for me it was I, the thing that i take away from the grand prix was a sense of occasion um just the quantity of people and the level of enthusiasm like i said uh, we got in quite quickly on sunday morning but at 7 40 I was driving in with my wife. Um, she works as the brand identity manager for Dorna. And we were just passing, you know, families, you know, decked up with their, 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 their apparel and carrying flags and, you know, little kind of kids. And I said to her, you know, that this kind of passion really or this commitment, because let's face it, it takes not just, it's not, not only talking about ticket prices, but also the, the effort, the journey time, everything that it takes to commit to attending an event these days seems to be perhaps more than say when we were kids doing it uh, I said that kind of sort of zeal for for racing is something that I think promoters you know that's that's like gold to them um, and you know there was plenty of it on display in Le Mans I mean I'm a history buff as well so just being able to sort of drive in along part of the Molsane Strait to get into the circuit you know around into P1 um, for three or four days in a row was also uh, just gave like a real flavour of being a, a, a significant Grand Prix. So um, the weather helped, of course, but um, I'll definitely be going back next year. And I think uh, any other fans, especially those perhaps in the UK, 
um, wanting something different to, to Silverstone would also look it up because it's um, it's worth it. Yeah, the other thing about Lamage, I think the similarity with Aston is it's not necessarily just for bike fans. I know a lot of people go, a lot of Dutch people go to the TT because the sorry, the Dutch TT go to the TT because it's the TT. They go because it's you know it, it's it's Aston, it's an event. Um, they don't really follow bike racing the rest of the year. Uh, they're there for, um, as Stephen might say, the crack. Um, it is. It, you know, it's just a massive event and they want to be a part of it. And I think that that's something. It's the same with Jerez. You see all of the stuff that goes on downtown in, in Jerez. It's a massive event and that's what people want to be part of. Yeah, it's a massive event people want to be part of. And that is the biggest factor. And I think that that's also a big reason why uh, Renthal Street are keen to be involved with the Paddock Pass podcast. So let's hear from them. And then after the break, we'll be able to catch up with David about his big talking point and the same from Neil. Renthal Street Chain and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street and Gas Gas. David, time for your talking point from the French Grand Prix. My talking point is the fact that Marc Marquez is back. You know, we have Marc Marquez back to his... 2019 best I mean he said afterwards that you know he, the the best thing about it was he could just ride and you really saw it he was if you can see that this is the old Mark Marquez just by comparing it to uh, comparing him to all the other Honda riders uh, it's not just the 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 Calic chassis obviously Juan Mir had Calic chassis as well uh, Mark had uh, a couple of Calic chassis so he was able to race that now the Calic chassis is clearly uh, a bit better it helps uh, 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 it helps a little bit in quarter conference but the the things that Mark Marquez was doing was it was old it was old school Marquez you know it was what happened before 2020 before he managed to mess himself up um the the fact that he was able to break so deep the the fact that he was willing to uh as you say to, you know like try and rough people up to slow them down you know trying to r- r- rough Peko up at the um in the sprint race um the the fact that he was able to sort of you know keep messing with um, uh, Jorge Martin to sort of like keep him behind. He managed to stay up with him for a long time. And given the fact that, you know, he hasn't raced since the opening round at Portimao and hasn't, well, when was his last full race? I think we said it was October last year sometime. Yeah, Sepang. Yeah, that's a long time to have not done 20 laps. And by the end of it, when he was sitting in the pits, you could tell he was exhausted um, because, you know, for the first time he'd done a full race. But it was he was normal exhausted, not old exhausted. I think it's really important that um, he is back, you know, back to full fitness because he does add a, a lot of, you know, love him or hate him. And the fact that you either do love him or hate him is one of the reasons that makes it such an exciting that makes him such an exciting addition to the sport. You know, he um, he is willing to. He's also willing to fight. It's not just you know nice, careful, clean overtakes. It's also being willing to uh, you know win by any means necessary. Do whatever it takes to succeed and try and beat people off the track as well as on the track. And right now, I think. MotoGP really needs that so I was really pleased to see that back yeah and I thought that just what you say there about the the mentality that he has David we saw it on Friday whenever he said well if I crash at the end of free practice a yellow flag comes out and I'm still going to end up in the top 10 so it's all good and it's that kind of attitude and, and mental approach that's always set Mark aside 
But Neil, just to, to come to you about Marquez, just before you come in with your point, I have a quick question for you. On a scale of one to ten, how pissed off will all the other Honda riders be that Mark has come in, immediately shown them up again, and now the bike will just continue to be developed along the Marquez way and the other riders are going to struggle? I'm not sure pissed off is the right adjective. Uh, demoralized, I think, is maybe another another <laughs> one that I would use. I mean, you look at um, his performance, it was made all the more remarkable by the fact that Rins crashed out of 10th. And Rins was 10th with, I think, five riders already down the road. So he was basically at the bottom end of the points. Uh, Mir, when he crashed, only Jonas Folger was behind him. And that's a double world champion that we're talking about. Um and it was only three, four weeks ago that we were talking up Alex Rins's amazing talents and what he did at Cota, which was, by the way, fantastic and really remarkable. Um, so yeah, this just put into perspective what uh, you know what Mark is able to do. I thought Mir was interesting um, on Sunday night because he said that he felt he had made some improvements this weekend in that his fastest time wasn't a million miles away from, you know, the fastest guys in the race. Um, and certainly when you look at, you know, the quickest lap times of each rider, you know, Mira was only, I think, four tenths off, you know, the fastest lap of the race. But he said the difficulty is just being consistent with this bike because you're on the absolute, he described it as like being on the knife's edge when you're riding it, you know, on the limit, it can bite you so, so easily. And, you know, I, I think it's it's no... Um, you know, there's no kind of great secret behind why Mark has been out so much because the bike is not good at the moment. And to be as competitive as he was on Sunday, he is having to take enormous risks. Um, you know, he eventually crashed out at, at fairly low speed at, uh, at turn seven. But um, you just think it's not sustainable to to continue like that, you know. Um, we, we all know that, uh, you know, Honda needs to drastically improve. Um, and it was a fantastic showing from Mark. But, you know, at tracks like Mugello, really fast tracks that can bite you hard. You just wonder how sustainable is it riding the bike over the limit as he was doing um, on uh, on Sunday. I mean, it was wonderful to watch, but um, yeah, you just hope that um, he, he doesn't get injured because I, I agree with Dave, you kind of need that. You need someone there that just does not care whether he's loved or hated and who is willing to, to stir the pot. I thought it was fantastic. We've been crying out for some needle in press conferences recently. It was great on Thursday to hear him, you know, shout at Jorge Martin for the bullshit he was talking in Mark's words after uh, Portimao. Um, you know, and that also added spice to the the Sunday fight because you felt there was a kind of, you felt that him and Martin fighting, that it was it was personal. I, uh, I agree with Dave and Neil that it's, it's fantastic to have Mark back at that level. Um, I don't think he's kind of anywhere near he was in 2019. Just trying to read his demeanor in the media debriefs across the weekend, uh, you know, he seemed to sort of be not struggling, but the enjoyment of being back racing was tempered by exhaustion and also a bit of frustration. Uh, the Calic chassis, which, you know, he bent and dented, you know, across the weekend, uh, seems to have made something of a difference but yeah again just to reference what you guys have already said it puts Honda back in that sort of plight of having to develop a motorcycle for one outstanding talent who is providing great entertainment um, at the weekend um, on Sunday in particular before the grid formed up I mean the, the announcer goes through and, and 
you know, introduces all the names and gets a big cheer from the big capacity crowd. And of course, when he announces Mark Marcus's name, there's a big chorus of boos, which, you know, and I've said numerous times, I cannot understand what would motivate someone to boo Mark Marquez, but I guess it's just like a, a high profile footballer. You're always going to get people that want to um, kind of attempt to derail, a, you know, a star athlete. But um, there was, I mean, I don't think it was just me, but on Friday there was a feeling of... Um, just being slightly incredulous about Mark, what Mark was doing. I mean, he crashed twice. The second one was pretty high speed. You know, it was similar to Alex Rins' crash in the Sunday race. And, you know, he was looking for toes. He was generally making a nuisance of himself. Um, you know, the last time we had seen Marquez racing in MotoGP, he had torpedoed one rider, you know, been through the whole rigmarole of a, a you know, botched FIM penalty. And he almost like kind of wanted to say to the guy, calm down. I mean, I asked him a question in the media deep. He would say, Mark, don't you fancy just coming back and, you know, um, kind of gently forth, you know, finding your way back into MotoGP, you know, before sort of like going all out again. And, um, you know, I, I prefaced the question by saying it was probably a stupid one. And um, he just kind of looked at me and said, look, this is all I know. This is the way I do it. But you kind of think, you know, how long, like you said, Neil, is it going to go on? where, you know, he's not going to be suffering some sort of injury. And why isn't somebody like HRC, like Alberto Puj, or somebody even higher up saying, Mark, we need you to be racing. We need you to be out there. We need you to be representing HRC, all of our sponsors. We need you to be part of this championship. You know, please just like rein it in a little bit and let's try and uh, make sure we don't have another month off the bike while you recover for something. Yeah, but then if you do that, he's not going to be up there fighting for the podium. And, you know, ultimately, that's the that's the aim of the game, I guess. As Mark said, he could be half a second slower per lap like the other Honda riders. Um, but, uh, but you know, that's not really his style. Yeah, I mean, he's not paid to ride around in 15th. He's paid to try and win. Um, and also, that's, uh, that's his character. He is so much like Eddie Merckx. He wants to win everything. He wants to win absolutely everything. If they had a Tiddlywinks game on the Thursday before the uh, uh, be, uh, be before the race, he would want to win that as well. And he'd probably end up trying to cheat his way through that as well. You know, he'd be barging other people's Tiddlywinks out of the way. Um, it, 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 his character is to win. You do not become successful by wanting, you know, by 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 settling. Um, I think we've seen riders who've sort of settled and tried to work their way into it. And then you also have to wait for Honda to do, to do it. Because the trouble is the bike, again, the bike is the problem, but it's mostly the engine and the electronics. The engine the, elect- the, the, the engine is still too aggressive. It's still really difficult c- to control. And Honda haven't managed to sort the, the electronics out to get them into a state where the power delivery is, is good and smooth. And the difference between the 2019 Mark Marquez and 2023 Mark Marquez is the bike, not the rider. Yeah, probably worth noting, Dave, that uh, some of our fans or some of the, the followers of the podcast may not know Eddie Merckx as that, uh, that, that motorcyclist without an engine. But um, <laughs> Neil, you mentioned about the, the challenge of consistency as well. And uh, I think that was one of the big things you wanted to talk about just over the course of, well, the season in general in MotoGP. Yeah, I mean, um, just looking at the championship standings after five rounds, Steve. Um, I mean, we've had... Obviously, five races, five sprint races as well. Uh, 185 points have been available for the MotoGP riders. Yeah, Pekka Banyaya leads on uh, 94. I mean, when you compare that to, to Moto2, which hasn't had sprint races, Tony Arbolino has five points more at the head of the Moto2 championship. Um, Danny Holgado has 10 points less in Moto3. And 
you know, you don't expect Model 3 riders to be anywhere near kind of uh, consistent uh, home performers as uh, as MotoGP riders. Um, I think we have just uh, 14 points covering the top four. Um, Bezeki now just one point behind Banyaya. Uh, Binder and Martina are also kind of in the mix as well and does have that kind of feel that the season is uh, is kind of wide open. It's almost like like last year when we were saying, um, does anyone actually want to win this championship? You know, Banyaya has crashed out of three. <laughs> he's leading the championship, yet he's crashed out of three feature races on Sunday, which is uh, a pretty remarkable feat, five races in. Um, he was saying, obviously, the what's basically holding him up at the moment is his performances in the sprint. He's been really, really strong um, on Saturday. He's been, I think, on the podium in four of the sprints so far. Um, but <clears throat> MotoGP seems to be as kind of inconsistent and wild as ever. Um, I mean, feasibly, you could look at the championship and say Fabio Quartararo isn't out of the out of the standings yet, which seems like a ridiculous thing to say considering he's had an absolutely shocking start to the season. Like really, really quite disastrous. Yet, you know, in the championship, you could uh, foresee him putting a bit of a run together at some point. He's only, um, I think, uh, 45 points away. So it's... Um, I think... Uh- I think that's uh, pretty much the same gap in percentage terms as Pekka Banyaya was last year at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's a it's a strange one, and I guess there are there are kind of two schools of thought. You could say that that basically the current crop aren't all that. Um, that you know we're, we don't have a field that is kind of rich in the kind of quality that we saw in years gone by, where Pedrosa Rossi. Stoner, Lorenzo were all competing together. Um, or you could just say that um, this is the reality of MotoGP right now. Even if you had big serial champions in the class like Lorenzo, like Rossi, they would probably be struggling to to kind of make um, a consistent mark because everything is so close, the racing is so chaotic, and the gaps are so tight. Neil, just about that, like if you look at a rider like Jack Miller, Jack crashed out of well contention in both races this weekend I think he scored a point in Coda so there's two weekends where he's had basically nothing to show for for his, his performances but MotoGP right now does seem that on the weekends whenever everything's working well for you you really need to strike hot you need to come away with you know two podiums on Saturday and Sunday and make up a big chunk of points because everyone is going to have those off weekends exactly yeah and I think you could say that Marco Bezzecchi's approach is is testament to that. Okay, he had a bit of a rubbish time at Hareth crashing in the main race. But other than that, he has been, with the exception of Portimao, with the exception of the Sunday race at Le Mans, he hasn't been that spect... Sorry, I say Portimao, I mean uh, Argentina. Uh, with the exception of, of those two kind of weekends, um, he hasn't been that spectacular. He's just been sort of racking up points and... Um, uh, you know, getting top sixes or top eights here and there. Um, and he finds himself one point off the championship lead. I mean, I get that some new fans or casual fans might look at GB and think, well, who's who's the top rider? I mean, who am I looking for for the standard? But, you know, so, as somebody who follows the sport and knows the sport, I think it's glorious. I mean, you have this real spread of parity and, you know, it just adds an unpredictable nature to the racing. Um, I mean, Neil, were you saying those two schools of thoughts? One, that the field is weaker than years past. I, I mean, I think completely the opposite i think there's a there's a caliber and a standard of rider in there that is absolutely exceptional and that's the reason why we are seeing such a diversity of results i mean how can alex rins go from conquering one of the most technically difficult circuits on the calendar to you know barely scraping into points contention in the following grand prix i mean i find those narratives are uh, you know spectacular it's 
I mean, it's a subject that, you know, journalists are asking writers about and writers are also thinking about. And it's, it's it, undoubtedly, it's something to do with the whole perception and image of the sport. It's, it's, a, it's a strange place, but I think it's a really, really good one. Uh, you know, what, what sport doesn't want numerous contenders going for the top spot, uh, whether it is on a Saturday or a Sunday in Weta GP's case? And um, I still, for me, the strongest vein is that Bagnaya is tossing away points. I mean, we all saw how comprehensive and dominant he was in, in testing and also in Portimao. Uh, he's getting into scrapes. He's making mistakes. I think, you know, if he had, uh, you know, people are kind of questioning his mentality. You know, can, can Bagnaya really, you know, um, impose himself on this championship? He certainly doesn't appear to have the character to do it. But in terms of being a rider, I mean, we, we've seen him handle all sorts of pressure situations. So, uh I think it's just a, it's a really good time for a MotoGP at the moment. And the fact that, you know, a hard racer like Brad Binder is right at the top of the championship stands is something that shouldn't be sniffed at either. Because if KTM really do have a, a decent level of the RC16 across different racetracks, and we'll find out in Mugello for certain, then, uh, you know, I think the South African is bang in play. Yeah, and uh, I think when you look at Paco, he's at been the top scorer in two rounds this year so he's obviously gone down that route of trying to take advantage when he can but uh, I'm off to Valencia this weekend for Junior GP and just when you talk about the depth of field Adam that's the reason we have the depth of field is things like all the talent cups because suddenly there's affordable ways for kids to get into racing. It doesn't have to be like it was 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, where you really needed to mortgage the future. You are able to get yourself in pretty affordable. And that means that instead of having, you know, each year, three or four kids that look like they could be special, there's 10 kids that look like they could be special. And then when they move from the Junior GP paddock to the Moto3 paddock in the World Championship, they've already got two or three years experience on a Moto3 bike. They can hit the ground running and immediately be competitive. And obviously the likes of Acosta showed coming in as a rookie, you can do that. And then Guevara as well was relatively competitive at times in the first year. And then the second year wins the championship. So now you have it where all these kids are able to move their way up through the Moto3 World Championship ranks quite quickly into Moto2, that field gets deeper and then GP gets deeper. I think I would agree with Neil that we don't have the out-and-out super talent that you used to see, but a big reason for that is that the depth of talent in the class is so deep now that it means that those super talents just they don't have that same margin that they would have had even when when Mark was coming through 10 years ago. Yeah, and just in terms of machinery as well, we've got eight Ducatis. Feasibly, eight Ducatis could finish on the po- any one of them could finish on the podium at any given weekend. When Miguel Oliveira is fit, you could say the same for three Aprilias. Um, Paul Espargaro comes back, you could maybe say the same about three KTMs, maybe by the end of the season four, judging on what Augusto Fernandez did at the weekend. And that's before we talk about, you know, the Hondas with, with Rins, Marquez, Fabio Quattararo as well. I mean, so you're looking at somewhere in the region of uh, 14 bikes that, um, you know, on any given. Adam, you had the chance to chat to Aprilia Racing CEO Massimo Bravola as well at the weekend. And Aprilia is actually quite a good segue from this because consistency is their issue. You look at last year, we all thought they'd really turned the corner. And then given how the start of the season's gone, it's just been a lot tougher for them. But what was what was the, the general chat with Massimo? 
Um, well, first of all, played football with him on Thursday, and Marek Vinales turned up. And uh, Vinales is annoyingly a fantastic motorcycle racer, but also a pretty decent footballer. So um, that was uh, quite annoying. Um, but yeah, I mean, for a big guy, our Massimo knows how to knock the ball around as well. So that was uh, pretty good. But I mean, we talked about you know how things have just gone so difficult for the RNF team. Um, you know, we had another RNF uh, RNF unlocked podcast. Uh, which Neil did, you know, on Thursday in Le Mans, um, you know, speaking with Razan Rosali and, uh, you know, Wilco Zielenberg, of course, Ralph Fernandez having more injury troubles, well, injury, but more physical problems. Uh, and of course, Miguel Oliveira still not fit, able to race. There's sort of question mark hanging over him for Michelo, it would seem. Um, but then otherwise, it's just a case of, you know, Aprilia, as Alessius Bargaro keeps telling us, have a motorcycle that can make the lap time, but they, you know, they struggle when they get into the pack. And, you know, the fact that I think Aprilia are really sort of pushing for their first significant results so far this season is, is something that I think is weighing on their mind. But, um, you know, Massimo gave us five minutes of his time, which was greatly appreciated. So, uh, yeah, well, we, we managed to grab him on Sunday after the race. Tell us a little bit about today uh, from the team's perspective, because the weekend started off difficult, you know, particularly for the RNF guys uh, with Raul having some problems with, you know, his arm after the operation. Uh, so it was it was difficult, but I mean, a marvelous event as well. 1,000 GPs, um, the crowd here were spectacular. No rain in Le Mans, which was strange. Um, what's, what's your first emotions from today? Yeah, the, the first thing I will say is that uh, this event is uh, superb. Is uh, I mean, uh, all the promoters should look at what they are doing here. It's something really special. In three, four days, almost 300,000 people. It's something that... Uh, it's really an example, a good example of the passion of motorsport and how to organize a big event. Regarding the, the, the racing part, uh, yeah, RNF uh, suffering. We knew that Raul was very, very ambitious to come back. Uh, we didn't want to take any risk and in fact he was on the same path, so he, was, he felt he was not ready after uh, just a couple of laps, so he, we decided together to, to retire for safety. Uh, Lorenzo did his first weekend with them and uh, he was improving every day and uh, his race pace was uh, actually quite uh, quite okay I would say he was uh, even faster than uh, Danilo's on uh, Ducati so fine uh, I think also at the end he had a bit of arm pump problem too but you know when you're not used to, to race uh, this is something that can make a difference we are really waiting for Miguel to come back. He's so far is the most uh, unlucky guy of the season with uh, two very bad uh, crash and, and none of the time was his fault. So I'm looking forward to seeing him back on in, in Aprilia. And regarding uh, Maverick and Aleixa, well, the, with this format, uh, FP1 is already a sort of uh, almost qualifying and uh, Friday was okay. Uh, Saturday was uh, promising quite a lot, uh, but uh, when uh, we, we had to put the, the second uh, new tire in Maverick case uh, to, to do the, 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 the lap time, uh, he had uh, an electronic problem, and that is something that uh, is not up to us, so uh, we need to speak to, to, to some supplier. Um, so basically, from the pole position, he turned P6. Today, he started in, a, let's say, in a fighting mode, and it was just what I wanted to see from him. Since yesterday, the sprint race was not really good for him. 
the I think the pace he had uh, potentially was uh, to win the race. Uh, he's showing even in uh, in warm up that was the, the fastest on track. And then unfortunately there was a bit of uh, misunderstanding, I would say, with uh, Peko. Uh, I don't know. I mean. I, I, I cannot blame anyone, uh, but uh, if there is someone that see the guy, what is going on, uh, is Peko behind uh, to see what Maverick uh, is doing, and, uh, and having a turn on the left, uh, there's, I mean, Peko has not much uh, room, but, uh, you know, this is racing at the end. It looked like a racing incident. I mean, it was yeah, hard to find too much yeah, blame. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, it, it, it's a pity when it's coming in the first few laps of the race, uh, when still there is a lot to show. Uh, regarding Aleix, uh, he had a good start, but uh, Turn 6 was super unlucky. He met uh, a bit of confusion and two guys that pushed him out, but uh, again, he's just racing, so he lost five positions and uh, he found himself uh, really on the back. Uh, and then uh, he had the pace to recover and he had the pace also uh, to, 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 to overtake, but uh, with our bike. Uh, when we are in free air, we are quite fast. When we are in the middle, uh, we lose a lot of performance because we have t- maybe we do U corners more than V corners. If I, if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so we need to start in front to, to do what we want to do. So we're looking forward to Mugello. Massimo, how difficult is it to fix that with a bike? Is there enough time? Is there enough resources to really find a solution? Or are we going to be thinking second half of the season, Mizano, around that area? Uh, I don't, I'm not really sure that I w- we would like to change uh, the philosophy of our bike because we were looking just for this kind of bike. Maybe we need to sort of start. Uh, the start that KTM is showing uh, so far is something that uh, is a benchmark for sure. And we need to understand uh, how to match them, at least. And it will take time. But uh, regarding uh, which kind of bike uh, we should do for the future, I would rather prefer to wait for a few more races and see a few more tracks where you have a lot of cornering speed. Uh, so Mugello, I think, will be a good test. Uh, lastly, Massimo, the um, you know, top five potential from Alesh you know, must be a positive, particularly after his crash uh, yesterday, I believe. Uh, you know, it was incredibly fast going into turn one. You guys must have been very worried for a few moments there until thankfully he was OK. Yeah, uh, yesterday he thought uh, he had the polo to do on his pocket. Uh, he arrived at turn one uh, a bit optimistically. <laughs> And he decided to leave the bike uh, at the 300 almost uh, kilometers per hour. So we are lucky that uh, he managed to do the race, uh, the sprint race and the race today. Uh, so all in all, uh, good. I mean, the bike can be repaired, uh, but uh, for, for humans it's a bit more difficult. So I'm happy that uh, he's still in good shape. We have a bit of time now to prepare for, to, 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 for Mugello and we have our uh, big uh, party with uh, in Misano with the Aprilio Star on the 27th I hope you, hope you join us and uh, well I, I think that uh, we have now Mugello uh, Netherlands uh, um, Silverstone track that maybe the potential of our bike uh, can uh, if we don't succeed in that kind of track maybe we have to start thinking about something different but uh, not now thank you ever so much for your time best of luck in Mugello thank you
And that interview was also on the Paddock Notes show from Sunday at Tourette. So check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast if you want to become a Paddock insider and get the Paddock Notes show. Let's move on to our winners and losers from the weekend. And uh, Adam, let's kick it off with you once again. We'll, we're just going in alphabetical order. It's not in, in order of uh, favoritism. But uh, Adam, uh, who was your big winner? Uh, for me, Bezeki. Uh, because, I mean, Neil was talking about the consistency in the Ducatis on the grid, but he is the rider that's currently maximizing what he has. Uh, you know, it became kind of pointless to a degree asking Marco what he had tested both pre-season and also in Jerez recently because there was not much to test. Uh, you know, the VR46 Mooney guys just really had to work on race settings, which, you know, is also played into their hands a little bit, I think. Um, you know, Bezeki rightfully is now right behind Bagnaia in the championship standings. Um, I mean, he had to deal with the penalty. He had to drop one position for that mistake uh, in the race on Sunday. Uh, and, you know, I think you also have to look at the race overall and say that he kind of lucked into the victory. He rode superbly, but there are a number of riders that would have been pushing him for that first place. But, uh, yeah, for the moment, Bezeki is definitely sort of rising star is the wrong description, but he's um, the man of the moment. Yeah, I have to say, fair play to Marco as well, because it's taken us 70 minutes to pretty much mention the race winner. But uh, Neil, um, sorry, I'll come to David first for his uh, for his winner as well. Like I said, alphabetical order, David. So who's your big winner? My winner is Mark Marcus for all the reasons that I gave earlier. You know, he's back to his old self. You know, he's able to ride again the way that he knows that he can. And I think that's important for the championship, but it's really important for Mark as well. Yeah, I'd be happy enough to go with Honda as my big winner as well, Dave, just for having Mark back. But uh, Neil, what about you? Who was your winner? Uh, my big winner was the man that finished in fourth in just his fifth MotoGP race, Augusto Fernandez. Arguably, you could say was the ride of the day. Um, fourth position, okay, a couple of riders crashed. Well, quite a few men crashed in front of him, but he finished just six uh, seconds off uh, the victor. He was the top KTM. He had to pass, I think, both KTMs to get to the uh, the, the top KTM position. Um, and he was being put under all sorts of pressure in the closing laps by Alicia Spargro. Um, and Spargro couldn't really do anything for it. Um, yeah, uh, he was just consistent. <clears throat> he was strong right the way through the weekend. You could see already in P1 on Friday morning, I think he was in the top 10. <clears throat> and um, it seems that basically, uh, you know, two things kind of contributed to the performance. It was uh, trying to alter his riding style ever so slightly to be slightly more aggressive with the KTM. Um, you know, he, he obviously observed how Jack... The gas, Brad, gas. Sorry, gas, gas. How uh, Brad and Jack were riding at uh, Hareth. Augusto is a naturally smoother rider. Um, so he did some good work, I think, at the Hareth test on uh, Monday after the race there uh, to work on his riding style. Also, he went against his better judgment and raced with the medium front tyre in the sprint. Um, didn't feel comfortable with that. Even though I think KTM were recommending that the uh, the medium was the, the option for the race, he decided to push with the, the soft and tried to manage it towards the end. And um, yeah, he was able to... He was able to manage it really well. So, yeah, what a performance from Augusto. I think a lot of us, myself included, felt that he was going to be a bit of a stopgap this year. Basically, someone that is just holding a seat until Pedro Acosta is ready for MotoGP. But he's showing that he does belong at this level. With every race that passes, there's more questions around Acosta for his MotoGP future. Um, it's, I mean, it's quite fitting at the weekend that, you know, Pedro crashed out somewhat unexpectedly and Augusto produced his best result. What do, what do we think, guys? Do Has Fernandez kind of earned something of a stay of execution? I mean, could Acosta be persuaded to stay another year in Moda 2? 
I, you know, this is kind of one of the biggest stories I think that's brewing at the moment. But the thing is, if you're Acosta in his management team as well, and you look around the rest of the MotoGP field, you don't really want to be jumping on a Japanese motorcycle right now. Uh, of course, if someone throws a multi-million dollar contract into your face, then that's one thing that you can't ignore. Um, but you could take a satellite Ducati and begin your development that way. It's um, it's it's a kind of a, a, a sort of delicately balanced situation, and what it seems it seems that Fernandez has really done everything possible to put himself in good stead with the Pira Mobility Group and the whole Gas Gas, you know, Factory Racing Tech Three setup. Uh, you know, he's not put a foot wrong, and that result I think was uh, like you say, Neil. It was um, it was particularly it was like a milestone, and Jack Miller was um, being complimentary by saying with the RC16 technical platform, the motorcycle the guys have, you know, there's four very different riding styles there, and the fact that Fernandez has been able to adapt to what the bike needs, but also, um, you know, harness some kind of performance potential of how he rides a motor MotoGP bike is um, another testament to him. I think for me, Ad, if you're KTM, do you want to miss out on a generational talent that Acosta could be? Because even though he's only done, what, a year and five rounds in Moto2, he's already won nearly as many races as Augusto won in Moto2. He came in, won a Moto3 championship as a rookie, looked really good last year. Obviously, the crash at the weekend takes a little bit of the shine off for him in terms of Augusto has a really good weekend. But can you afford to lose Pedro Acosta because let's say Jorge Martin does end up saying that he wants to be a factory rider obviously there's been the links to Yamaha this that and the other and he decides to leave the Pramac seat do you want to run the risk of Pedro Acosta jumping onto that Ducati instead getting himself a factory Ducati contract and then potentially being a factory Ducati rider for the next six seven eight years I don't think you can afford to take that risk I think that regardless of Augusto doing a good job you look at it and you say you're there as our fourth rider and maybe you wait and see what Paul's recovery is like as well. Maybe you then say that maybe that the crash in Portimao gives you a reason to use Paul as that scapegoat instead. Yeah, exactly what uh, Steve said. Um, you can't afford to miss it. If you're Ducati, uh, you look at Pramac and you say, okay, let's see what Zarco does. Um, you could sacrifice Zarco to get uh, to get Acosta. Uh, if you're KTM, uh, you would look at uh, Paul Espargaro, tell Paul that he's too injured, uh, whether he is or not, or you sort of like say, sorry, Augusto. And Augusto rode fantastic. He had a fantastic weekend, but, you know, he's not Pedro Acosta. Adam, you had the chance to catch up with the Gas Gas team manager as well, just to see what his thoughts were on Augusto's progress. And I thought it was interesting, the mentality that he brings to the fore. Yeah, Nicola, you know, Guillaume was able to spare some minutes for us um, after the race on Sunday. Um, we actually asked him about the, you know, the pressure around, you know, the talk of Acosta coming to the team at Augusto's expense. Uh, that was one of the things, um, as well as a couple of other subjects. So, uh this is what he had to say to us. Nicole, thanks for talking to us. You just finished an ice cream and I think you deserve it because uh, it's been a fantastic day for the team. Um, can you just explain how you saw Augusto's performance from your perspective here in the pit box? Yes, thank you. It was a vanilla ice cream, so it was good. No, no. Um, yeah, well, we, we knew from the beginning of the weekend for them, from the first uh, session that Augusto had um, something... <coughs> something in the pocket here 
um, what did the track layout um, after Jerez test? He made a step in uh, in uh, Jerez and uh, was really happy afterwards. So we arrived here with uh, a lot of confidence. And from the beginning, he was fast. So we knew he could do he could do well. He did his first uh, ever Q2 uh, yesterday. So it, this was, uh, I mean, for a rookie, this is something quite uh, quite difficult to achieve. Uh, and um, and no, we knew we knew he had a good potential. Unfortunately, he had a few crashes that uh, could have uh, break his confidence, especially this morning in the warm up. This is always quite tricky to crash in the warm-up for, for your confidence before the race. But in the end, we, we reset a little bit his mind. Uh, we made a few different cho choice of the bike uh, for, for the race, and this paid off. Uh, he had a good start. He managed somehow to, after a few crash, to be in a, to be in a good group. And for this time, uh, from this time, he rode a great pace and uh, ended up in, uh, in this position. He ended up uh, so P4, one point one and a half seconds from uh, from the podium. I think for a rookie in race five, it's a great achievement. Augusto was just telling us that you know for the first time he's really feeling the bike. Uh, you know he's he's been working on the setup. You guys have given him a pretty standard package, it seems, for him to acclimatize to MotoGP. But now he's actually finding his feet and he's finding maybe more limits than he did before. Can you see that as well? Yeah, well, sure. He has is uh, more is more confident. Uh, he has less uh, less down as before. Is uh, more is more consistent, and especially he was happy today uh, with uh, with the tire he raced with with the front. He said it's the first time that I have a proper feeling in front. So together with the bike change and. The change also we've made in uh, in Jerez test again. This uh, this was uh, helpful. Uh, now we see him quite steady, and if you look at the the whole weekend, he didn't change too much the setup of the bike. It was straight away good from P1. We just adjust. We stay a little bit conservative, and uh, and then he build up his confidence through the weekend without having to change the bike. And this is this show that we have a good base and. Uh, for this kind of championship, this is uh, this is uh, the best we can do. For a rookie, there's so much pressure now in MotoGP. Um, taking a top five result in only the fifth Grand Prix is this. Um, it's a big step forward in terms of confidence for him and for the team. But is it almost too much too soon? Would you be thinking of top five podium contention maybe in the second half of the season? Well, not clearly. We we couldn't uh, hope uh, about this such a good result. This is clear. But you know, in um, in Jerez, uh, he had an okay race. Nothing. I mean, he ended up P12, if I remember well. Uh, this needs to be confirmed. But I checked. You know, I checked the gap uh, that he had from the leader, and I realized that the year after, the year before. Uh, Bezeki had exactly the same gap, which was uh, 90 seconds uh, from memory. Bezeki last year ended up eight, which is good for a rookie, and uh, Augusto ended up this year uh, 12. So, I mean, the gap to the leader is the same, just the category is even more competitive. And uh, so we knew he had the potential to do something well. We expected, we dreamed about it, but yeah, sure, clearly we couldn't dream too early to, be in, um, to achieve a top five. 
uh, even top four. So no, no, it's a it's a good result. I hope it's not too too early. It's just the um, the result of uh, a good work from the old Pira Mobility bikes. This is very clear. We have a good base. Uh, Jack show us the the more or less a way that we we follow somehow, and uh, and the base is good now. Nico, it's a difficult question, but I, I have to ask it. Uh, people are wondering, you know, there's lots of talk about Pedro Acosta. Where will he go within the Pierre Mobility Group structure? Um, Augusto, for that, you know, maybe has faced some pressure about, you know, is he going to keep his place? Is he going to be strong enough as a rookie in MotoGP? From what do you see how this is around him and the team? What, what do you think? What's your opinion? Well, this is not uh, in my hand, for sure. And uh, as uh, most of the guys in the paddock, I, I hear the rumors. But the only answer to, to this for Augusto is to perform as, uh, as much as he can. And he showed today that he can, uh, he can do it. So as many points he puts in his pocket, uh, the best it is. So this is what he did today. And lastly, uh, it was a thousand GP at your home GP in Le Mans. Big crowd, big atmosphere. Uh, what was it like watching that race? Because it was 27 laps of craziness, wasn't it? I mean, it really shows that as an entertainment product, MotoGP is wow, it's firing on all cylinders. Yeah, sure. This this event has been uh, has been huge. Has been amazing. We had a uh, we had a great show all through these three days. Uh, yesterday, I mean, uh, the the PHA team of Claude Michi has many years. Uh, they they prepare a great uh, event. Um, so we knew we knew this. We had a lot of pressure. I had a few people around uh, that say the, the the circuit is full. We've never seen such a such a huge crowd. Uh, we knew it was a lot of people uh, also coming from us. You see, you could have seen uh, Hervé was uh, is one of the famous uh, famous guy here. So, but well, we had a lot of not a lot of pressure, but we really wanted to achieve a, a good result. We knew we could do, uh, but then to to end it up in a, in a fourth position is like a, is like a dream. When we when we saw the race, uh, we saw Gusto was in the top ten. It was already a, a good a good result. Then um, a few events. Uh, happened in the front. He managed to stay calm. Uh, Alej put a, uh, a lot of pressure behind him. He overtook him in the last uh, lap, but he resists. He managed to pass him back, and he ended up in fourth. So yes, it's a, it's a dream. It's a dream. Thanks ever so much for your time. Uh, we hope to see more in Mugello. Yes, thank you. Bye. Yeah, another bit of great insight there. Uh, let's uh, go to our losers from the weekend, and uh, we'll go in reverse order this time. Neil, who was your loser? Uh, my loser was Maverick Vinales. Um, because it was a race where he looked really, really strong. He had, uh, he had good rhythm. Um, he was showing the requisite aggression. And look, we know Maverick has his faults. He's not the perfect rider. But you do have to feel for him sometimes because I feel in the last couple of weeks his, rot, his luck has been pretty bad. Uh, you think back to Hareth where he had a great start on the Sunday race. Then it was red flagged and he couldn't repeat that. Um, you know, here he was on course for pole position and then his he had a mechanical issue in the second well the, the last five minutes of qualifying um so he had to start from the second row then he was looking really good in the race and he had this uh he had this moment with Banyaya. so yeah i think maverick um another race has gotten away um where he hasn't managed to score anywhere near the kind of points that he had the potential to score middleman Emmett, who was your loser at the weekend uh well um my 
Loser of the weekend is Jack Miller because very much like Maverick Vinales, he looked really strong. He fancied himself. He was really quick. Um, and yet he still manages to come away with, uh, I think, zero points. Um, he should have, you know, he, he crashed out. There's no real reason for him to crash out, but he, he did. Also, this might be a little bit of um, irritation on my part because I swapped him out and put him in my uh, fantasy team at the start of the weekend. In fact, my fantasy team had a complete nightmare because I had, uh, l- let's see, I had Jack Miller who crashed, Maverick Vinales who crashed, Sean Mir who crashed, and Luca Marini who crashed. <laughs> It is ambitious to put John Muir into your fantasy team right now. But uh, Adam, you're obviously my big loser from the weekend for all the mentions that we've had on the pod so far about your travel journey. But who was your loser from the weekend? Uh, Like Dave, I think myself for my fantasy team pick, I had three riders that also hit the ground. And just Brad Binder saving some, you know, a meager collection of points from my tally. I'm even too scared to go and look at the ranking. Um, But I believe Neil is um, sitting chipper in the table. He's sailed all the way up. Um, just to prove every dog can have its day. Um, don't worry, I'm sure sort of, you know, normality will be resumed by the time we get to Michele. But otherwise, um, my loser, Steve, uh, Fabio Quattararo. I mean, very much the darling of the French crowd. Every time he came near the Yamaha pit box, there was a huge uh, kind of cheer and there was, um, a, you know, the, the, the crowd were particularly animated whenever he was in public view. And um, yeah, his kind of travails with Yamaha just continue. Um, his media debrief on Friday in particular was, was quite sensational. Uh, you know, he said that the Yamaha and the M1 package they have isn't good enough in turning, braking, acceleration, everything. I mean, it was pretty damning. And then on Sunday, he admitted to us that after trying numerous parts for, for this season with the bike, they're actually just going to revert to a 2021 setting um, you know that was going to be sort of the ba- basic template for the rest of the season and you think you know what a situation to be in um, you know you feel for Franco for Morbidelli especially but for Quattararo um, in front of that crowd and that level of support um, it was kind of heartbreaking also to see a talent like that um, really languishing and just not able to do you know what he's capable of on a motorcycle so uh I just hope he has better fortunes in the circuits to come, but it's it's looking very much like um, they're treading water. And to be honest, wider implications. I'm worried that Yamaha are looking at this, thinking, you know, do we do we or can we invest the millions it's going to take to get competitive in MotoGP, or actually, do we just kind of scrap it and just um, you know look for other other investment possibilities, which you know Suzuki have done. And I hope. You know, Yamaha can eventually get back to having four bikes on the grid and not go the other direction and sort of, you know, snip away their, their MotoGP participation. So, uh, yeah, there's a few clouds on the horizon there and it was, um, it was raining particularly hard at a sunny Le Mans for Fabio. Yeah. Yamaha, the, the biggest challenge is once you go down to only having two bikes on the grid, you've lost all that data. But uh, we have mentioned the MotoGP fantasy a few times on the show already. So check out the Paddock Pass Podcast 2023 League if you're playing in MotoGP fantasy. As it is right now, Neil, you have made a big jump. You're up to the top 100 now. So uh, that's a good step. And Adam, you're nearly outside the top 200, which puts you pretty close to David as well. Anyway, I'll, I'll sit here a little bit smugly with my three riders having crashed out of the race and I'm still up in 33rd on the list. So I'm quite comfortable with how the MotoGP fantasy has gone so far this year. But I have to say, nibble, nibble, bite. 
He's uh, certainly feeling even more comfortable. He's out in front in our fantasy league. So keep an eye on that on MotoGP Fantasy and then keep an eye on Patreon as well. Patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast where we bring you lots of additional content through the course of a MotoGP weekend with the Paddock Notes show. And usually during that show, we've got lots of interviews during the course of the weekend as well and obviously lots of insight as well. So that'll be back from Majalo. So a few weeks off for uh, the three wise men of the MotoGP paddock as I said I'm off to Valencia and then back to Superbike duty so you know this is where it's a little bit busier for the Superbike paddock compared to the MotoGP paddock Steve also a quick shout out to people listening to the show just to give us a rating on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast um, let us know what you think give us some feedback uh, we've got a special show lined up next week with a, a very exclusive guest as well so don't miss um, the Paddock Pass podcast next week Mm, well teased there Ad, and uh, I'm excited to find out who it's going to be for that but a uh, big thank you to Renthal Street and to Gas Gas for supporting the podcast of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by the Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.